your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, the 6th, the 6th, the 6th of April. Yes, April is the cruelest month, give or take a few weeks in late October. Mm, mutability, it is, it is a beautiful, beautiful weather. The air's like wine out there. Oh, I got up this morning and I went out to greet the dawn and then I heard Amy Goodman's show on Democracy Now! and that horrible, horrible, horrible the U.S. military men murdering Iraqi citizens, shooting them down from helicopters. Oh, back in 1966, I remember a film that changed my life. It was called The Mills of the Gods. It reminded me of Amy's uh, the video that Amy came up with uh, this morning. It was... Um, Yes, the title is The Mills of the Gods, and that full quote would be, The Mills of the Gods grind slowly, and they grind woe. Uh, it was a French-Canadian film. Uh, it was uh, about Americans in Vietnam. It was not made by the American military. The French-Canadians got their hands on <laughs> <laughs> film and they they um filmed these guys they were flying over the rice fields in Vietnam and strafing the Vietnamese farmers. Uh they had the same same childish glee as the guys that Amy had on the video today, the ones that were killing Iraqi citizens uh just for fun. I I remember vividly in the 1966 film uh, a quote from one of the men there were two men in the airplane strafing these uh, uh, unarmed peasants and one of them uh, looking down looking down at the uh, the farmer in the field he he said look at them run and there was much laughter uh it was uh, funny. There were no video games in those days, but today's video game mentality, this infantile behavior, I mean, it is learned or conditioned behavior, but it's completely mindless, sans thought, sans reflection, no attempt to do anything reasonable. They just wanted another hit. Um, I don't know. The pathology is beyond belief. Uh I hope, I hope, anyway, that that video, that tape, at least the audio part, uh, gets to the mass media so that 
people may see that the pathology of war is a psychosis. Uh, anyway, the Mills of the Gods. Back in the day, I'm still looking around. I can't find that. I think I had that tape in my cupboard somewhere, but it's disappeared. Uh, I just sat down on the back porch and decided I'd have to read a book. I... I thank the goddess for stories. That's all that's left for people like me. Theater, um, plays, anything to escape the world of reality. Um, I'm addicted to anything that's at least partly fantasy. I've been rereading The Miss of Avalon so I can send it to the Pope. I put some footnotes in it for... Uh, the benefit of uh, the Pope, I, <laughs> I think maybe, maybe the Pope can change his mind. Maybe the Pope will figure out that he's got to take women into the church. Uh, I mean, for real. You know, the Miss of Avalon by Marion Zimmer Bradley. It's dates from the 80s, I guess. It's all about the pagan world in Britain at the time of King Arthur. What's that, about the 8th century, 7th or 8th century? The story um, tells all about the Lady of the Lake and the uh, goddesses, priestesses on uh, Avalon. It's the Apple Island, yes, the Island of the Apples. And they believe that all gods are one god. The old religion is nature worship. Pagan stuff, the goddess incorporates both masculine and feminine principles. Most people know all that stuff nowadays, but, you know, it's all very green and very, uh, very new agey. The Pope needs a pagan worldview. Get him out of this mess he's in with the child abuse tragedy. Nothing funny about it. Uh, I'm so cynical, I assume that the behavior, the child abuse behavior, has been going on since day one. It is just that it has come to our attention. Um, thank God for the New Age psychology. We finally decided that, uh, what is that, sadomasochism? is uh, overrated and that maybe we could outgrow it. Anyway, uh, I'm assuming that the Pope might have had a few second thoughts by now. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Uh, he, as you know, is infallible. And the only person who can fire him or do anything uh, to alter his behavior is he himself. Uh, and, of course... He must have realized by now that one of the remedies might be married clergy. Uh, I think of the Protestant clergy. They certainly are not perfect. They do seem a little happier, maybe a little bit better adjusted. I thought of old Martin Luther, you remember, um, back in, what is he, 15th, uh, 15th century, 16th Okay, during the Reformation, uh, the Reformation of the Catholic Church, Martin Luther, you know, he nailed his demands on the door of the church, and then uh, he got married. He married this nun. He had terrible constipation, and this good woman healed him up and 
made him nice hot soup. He needed proper care. And he was very grateful for the love and attention of this good woman. Uh, I'll get a biography of Martin Luther and send that along. I'm sure the Pope has read it, but I'll jog his memory. Yes, a biography of Martin Luther. I think of all those aged bachelors in the Vatican. My God, a recipe for entropy. Good line, Jennifer, a recipe for entropy. They just (laughs) turn to stone, those guys. Think how happy they could be if they would invite the nuns to come and visit and make them comfortable. I'll send the Pope a reading list. There's so many new books uh, all about the old pre-patriarchal religions. They're such fun. Uh, Actually, if the Pope were clever, he might just be able to jump over the mullahs. Uh, That's a frivolous notion. He could uh, declare them... uh, out of date. Medieval, yes. He could say that um, Islam uh, has got it all wrong and he, uh, he in the Catholic Church, he could say he embraces modernism. Feminism is, of course, modernism. <laughs> Fat chance he'd do anything like that. Actually, I truly believe that the women in the Catholic Church are the only hope for that institution uh, they seem to be trying uh, harder than ever to make their presence felt. I've read some of the letters that they write to the Pope with the most incredible respect and uh, patience and concern. Uh, they made a noise. Uh, they really uh, got furious when the Republican... Um, senators and congressmen attacked the abortion funding during the health care debate. I was surprised. Uh, they went against the uh, church teaching and said that they thought it was a good idea to support women's reproductive rights, women's reproductive health. This is certainly the moment, the hour for Catholic women, both the lay women and the women uh, clergy, the nuns, to step in, get this thing sorted, as the Brits say, yes. Um, I don't know what power, actual power they have, apparently, next to none, but I think uh, all they need to do is what workers do everywhere, just, you know, go on strike, tools down. Anyway, the women I know, uh, <laughs> both both um, the the lapsed Catholics and the Catholic um, uh, nuns I know, they're famous for their terrific sense of humor. Surely uh, they would know what's what. Uh, the first order of business, if you'd pardon my giving advice, nobody asked me, the first emergency gesture would be to um, be certain that a woman, none or any woman, is always present when male clergy are with children. 
I don't understand uh, how it is that these men can be left alone with vulnerable uh, children. I, I remember years ago, uh, uh, it was always the rule with doctors. Um, I worked for my father the year or two after I got out of college, and it was the custom always to have uh, another woman in the room for any um, uh, GYN exam, uh, usually a nurse, but if there was no nurse available, he would just call me. Uh, a woman needs to have another female there to hold her hand and so forth. Uh, I uh, don't think that's the custom anymore. Um, I have a woman gynecologist, but I think several times over the past couple decades, yes, male gynecologists don't bother with that much, uh, that much manners. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, yes, a man and a woman always with the children in the church. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think that that might be a wonderful idea in the classroom. A couple, at least, um, two individuals, and probably a man and a woman makes sense. They're always making such a fuss about needing both. <laughs> anyway, it's been a terrible week. Um, I try to feel sorry for the, uh, the Pope, but, um, I hope that, uh, I hope that this does him in. Well, I hope that this this is enough drama to force a real change. At least, maybe another, um, you know, like Vatican II was it? Uh, let's let's have another um, convention, like like having a constitutional convention. Let them all sit down and uh, rework the whole damn thing. Uh, I think that uh, it is hard to practice joyful participation in the sorrows of the world and I admire the efforts of priests and theologians they they um, they have to look at the the sad stuff and they're the ones who have to light the candles and perform the uh, you know the reading of the names and the lamentation and all that good stuff and uh, God knows uh, it's hard for them and I think they need some help but uh, the horror of this recent stuff, um, it is too much for me. Uh, I spent most of last night listening to the radio about these poor souls trapped underground in the mines. And then, uh, oh golly, it seems to me that for a year now, we've had uh, human beings buried alive after earthquakes. It's a Fine madness. I want to recommend, before I forget it, there's a TV show. Hmm, we're going to use this stuff for entertainment now. The Katrina Catastrophe has spawned a television show, and it looks like a good one. Uh, terrific cast. Starts tomorrow night on PBS, Public Broadcasting. Uh, hour, yes, it's an hour uh, every Wednesday night. The title is Treem, T-R-E-M-E. I didn't get it. I thought that was something like extreme, but uh, apparently it's a section of the city of New Orleans, Treme, T-R-E-M-E. 
So there's a whole bunch of stuff about the music and about the people of New Orleans. Uh, and they're trying to put everything back together again following the Katrina nightmare. And I imagine uh, that this has got, what do you call it, uh, a superscript, what I have seen of it, looks terrific. It looks like it's all about courage and grace under pressure. And there's even some fascinating stuff about women. <laughs> I wanted to finish up or read some more of the essay that I was reading to you last Tuesday. I got one kind note about it because it's all about the feminine principle and I was trying to talk about the fact that the, the gods of love and the gods of death both have male names, Eros and Thanatos. They were both guys in Greek mythology, you know. Eros is that little Cupid guy with the bow and arrow and Thanatos. Uh, oh, yes. I remember Thanatos. There's a poem called Thanatopsis. It was my father's favorite poem. And he would roar. After having had a few, uh, having had a drop taken, as they say, and he would read Thanatopsis, uh, from beginning to end, that and the chambered nautilus. He was very fond of the 19th century poets. Anyway, uh, I don't wish to, uh, uh, strain this metaphor, uh, about men and women, you know, I think last time I was talking about how, after all, everything is either curved or straight, and it's kind of hard to uh, separate masculine from feminine, I don't think you can, I think it's all about language, uh, it's just, what is it, it's, it, when you get down to the wire, you take a word, say, a word like strength, you speak of the strength of a woman and the strength of a man. And then everybody gets all fussed, you know. <laughs> we used to we used to do an exercise in which we put adjectives in front of um, men and women, and of course, once you get up to three or four, it all becomes absurd and contradicts itself. Uh, in any case, what I wish to understand is the nature of women's poetic perception. That's what I was talking about last Tuesday. There were a lot of women back in the 70s and in the 80s and in the 90s who seemed to think that women's writing would change things, would change our perceptions. Didn't, didn't, nothing happened. Uh, <laughs> but they're still sitting in class asking, does the brain have breasts? I think perhaps it does. Uh, it's not about subject matter. It isn't that. Uh, when I was a schoolgirl, they just said, well, Jane Austen writes about marriage and um, men write about um, important things like war, you know. There's a great deal of truth in that. I myself prefer the uh, feminine subjects. I remember what fun I had when all we had to worry about was Monica Lewinsky. I'll take a sex scandal any day. Uh, after listening to what's happening in Afghanistan and Iraq this terrible week, uh, yes, sex scandals are much more to my taste. Um, <laughs> anyway, it isn't the content, it's the style. 
I think, well, I don't know. I think that for women, poetry is passion. There are never, well, there are some academic women poets, of course. Uh, but as I understand it, you can't make poetry out of thought. Poetry is passion. If you're a thinker, I think you better stick to prose. I try to, yes, as Virginia Woolf told us. Poetry must have a mother as well as a father. And while a mother's passions may be less likely to hit the nail on the head, as a man might say, they are just as likely to kiss the joy as it flies. That's a line from William Blake. Uh, if anybody was ever a feminist, it's uh, Willie Blake. In her chapter on intimacy, the writer Alicia Ostricker, an old friend uh, that I quote in this essay, uh, I'm reading an essay called The Imperative of Intimacy. Eros, the imperative of intimacy. That's what we got to have these days, folks. Uh, the revolution of touch. Zing, a resurrection. Uh, Alicia's chapter on intimacy is full of quotes from Sigmund Freud. Old Ziggy struggles with Eros and Thanatos. He's struggling with the impulse to live and the impulse or the <laughs> desire to die. And uh, let me quote from uh, Sigmund Freud's book, Civilization and Its Discontents. It's a little book I carry about with me everywhere. I can read it to people on the bus. <laughs> Civilization and Its Discontents by Sigmund Freud. He writes, The Fateful Question of the human species seems to me to be whether and to what extent the cultural process developed in it will succeed in mastering the derangements of communal life caused by the human instinct of aggression and self-destruction. In this connection, perhaps, the phase through which we are at this moment passing deserves special interest. Men have brought their powers of subduing the forces of nature to such a pitch that by using them they could now very easily exterminate one another to the last man. They know this. Hence arises a great part of their current unrest, their dejection, their mood of apprehension. And now it may be expected that the other of the two heavenly forces, eternal Eros, will put forth his strength so as to maintain himself alongside of his equally immortal adversary. <laughs> of course, I carry civilization and its discontents around with me because it's all about the, the fact, and it is a fact, that women are disloyal to civilization. <laughs> They're subversives. 
There's nothing more subversive than a female. You have to be. Anyway, and look at this essay I wrote. Now, what if, I wrote, now what if, what if Eros is a woman at least half the time? I mean, there's plenty of death, Thanatos, connected with women and with women's poetry. So why not admit there is love as well? Alicia Ostricker, my friend and teacher, comments, If the release of anger is a major element in women's poetry, so too is the release of a contrary passion, which in part explains the vehemence of women's rage. What do women want? It was a question ancient, ancient before Freud asked it. A provisional answer? Were we to trust women's revenge poetry, would be that they want man's phallus or what the phallus represents, the power to conquer and punish. <laughs> Alicia's a trip. Okay, my essay goes on to say that my own term for a penis envy is sociocultural underprivileged, but that's not nearly so catchy as Freud's. <laughs> Castration fantasy is a taboo for women. Rage must not be acted out. I remember, oh, way back in the 70s, I did a performance piece in which a woman confesses uh, to murder, oh, and castration and a lot of other stuff. She describes her life surrealistically. She is at the end of her existential rope, and to relieve her feelings, she recalls a night that she cut her lover's throat and left bits of him all over the Boston Common, pontificating, pretentious old prick that he was. She mails the tools of his love to his mother in a coffee can with three black silk roses. Why three black silk roses? Why not? Now, this little play, or monologue, was a fantasy. I had been reading uh, Valerie Solanus's little um, scream, that little uh, pamphlet she wrote, remember, The Society for Cutting Up Men, Scum, yes. Valerie was mad as a hatter. She's the one who shot Andy Warhol. Anyway, um, what is really uh, fascinating is that a uh, woman's revenge uh, on men uh, is always, well, it's always kind of convoluted. Uh, in my little monologue or play, uh, the, the metaphor, the theme, was that her desire for revenge was based on the fact that um, this man she uh, assaulted had killed her baby, in quotes, her baby is her bush soul, her true self, her creative self. Uh, his male mystique has robbed her of that part of herself that wants to be a poet, a pantheist, a priestess. I was trying to express woman's anguish over the loss of her authentic being. 
You know, she has no authority. She is not the author of her own works. Now, the revenge is only an afterthought, kind of a shrug, which suggests the depth of her bitterness toward the linear Eurocentric masculine world, which has no place for her beliefs. She admits cheerfully to killing her tormentor. Well, she says, somebody had to kill him. <laughs> anyway, this essay goes on to explain that after a performance of this play, I was, uh, well, not, I was not hurt, but I was um, assaulted, intimidated, whatever. I was at the San Francisco Intersection Coffee House. And it's the last time I tried anything so <laughs> so reckless as expressing rage in a public place. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. KPFA is proud to honor the legacy of labor and civil rights leader Cesar Chavez. Join me, Rosie Reyes, host of Ritmo de las Americas, for the 10th anniversary Cesar Chavez Parade and Festival. On Saturday, April 10th, with special guest Dolores Huerta and Chicano comedy troupe Culture Clash as Parade Grand Marshal. Parade begins at 12 noon at Dolores Park. Festival follows from 1 to 6 p.m. at the 24th Street Fair in San Francisco's Mission District. Headlining the festival will be Anthony Blea y su charanga, along with Blanca Sandoval, Margarita and Usby, Futuro Picante, and Los Chiles Verdes. Annually, thousands of Bay Area residents join in celebration to honor Cesar's commitment to community, service, nonviolence, and self-determination. This event is wheelchair accessible. Visit CesarChavezDay.org for more info. This is a KPFA-sponsored event.